Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And welcome to our deep sea domain. This is Under Consultation, an episode by episode podcast type situation through the UK's greatest video game challenge TV show, Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke Cohen, and I could also smell his aftershave. And the Tweedledum to his Tweedledummer, I am Ash Versus. This episode aired on the 31st of October 1996. Ooh, spooky ooky Halloween. Wipeout 2097 and Toy Story top the console charts. Spice Girls are top of the pops with Say You'll Be There. And Dracula Dead and Loving It is top of the UK box office. This is the frightening and shocking tale of Count Dracula. Vampires do exist. This one we face is unlike any other. His evil desire has no end. She's alive? She's Nosferatu. She's Italian? Leslie Nielsen, Peter McNichol, Stephen Weber, Amy Yazbeck, Lizette Anthony, Harvey Corman, and Mel Brooks. If she dies, evict. Of this unspeakable creature, she will become one herself. What? She will become one herself. Dracula, dead and loving it. Ah, it's good to be dead. Your tone of voice when you said that last bit is exactly how I feel about this film. So let's just go through the basic facts of this movie, because for some reason we get this for two weeks. And so we've got to make this last two weeks now, Luke. I have no idea how we get this. I mean, I guess it's Halloween, but even so. On paper, comedy Dracula film, fine. 
Mel Brooks, also fine. Leslie Nielsen, The Naked Gun, Airplane. Come on. We're getting Young Frankenstein meets The Naked Gun in a parody movie of Dracula. Ash, what could possibly go wrong? It's not funny. (laughs) It's remarkably not funny. It is almost Carry On Dracula. There is a lot of the humour that has not aged well. Like, Mel Brooks' humour has not changed, like, since Spaceballs, really. The trailer, which you'll have heard a clip of, doesn't do it any favours either. But it does have Peter McNichol in it. I love anything with Peter McNichol in it. Uh, It was actually one of the reasons why I started watching Ally McBeal when it first started airing here in the UK, because I was like, oh, look, it's the lad from Ghostbusters 2. I'll watch this for a little bit, because then it's party time. That's the exact same reason that I started watching Ally McBeal. That, and I'd just been through a very difficult breakup, and I was emotionally vulnerable, and apparently Ally McBeal appealed to emotionally vulnerable me. It's that CGI dancing baby. Ooga chaka chaka chaka. But yeah, Dracula Dead and Loving It, like, it's amazing when you kind of like look at how this film performed in the US compared to how it performed here. This film tanked in the US on its opening weekend was 10th overall compared to the other week's releases. Here, we get it as a UK box office number one for two smecking weeks. We, as a country, occasionally have absolutely terrible taste in cinema, or we just don't care because there's been so many number ones we've had over the past couple of years where we have sat here and gone, how did this get to number one? But I think Dracula Dead and Loving It is the one where I can genuinely sit here and go, I do not know. I think we've got that again in a couple of weeks' time when we have the Crow City of Angels. I can live with the Crow City of Angels. I I can as well. What I more mean by that is like tanked in the US, but inexplicably did really well over here. I don't know. I think we're just a bit more gothy as a country. Therefore, we're more... Actually, maybe that explains Dracula (laughs) dead and loving it because, you know, the original goth. Yeah, this film was badly received in the US. It tanked in the US. It was pretty badly received over here. Guess what? Time hasn't been kind to it. It's got an 11% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Average audience rating of 3.1 out of 10. Oof. And even then that feels high. It's weird. Normally Rotten Tomatoes, the, the ratings get trolled negatively. I reckon some people are trolling this movie the other way. Maybe that's the case, yeah. And there's a commonality. If you go look at clips of this movie on YouTube or the trailer, is there will be a lot of people in the comments not roasting it, but going... I don't understand why people don't like this movie. This is hilarious. Look, she's showing that man her breasts. Comedy, I guess. Comedy. We get this for a second week. We also get Say You'll Be There for another week as well. So we'll talk about that in next week's episode. Which, as I have mentioned on a previous podcast, it's my favourite Spice Girls track off that album. After we talked about the Spice Girls and actually Babylon Zoo and a few of the other kind of musical acts that we covered over that uh, 1996 what happened period i went back and i think i was actually bopping around southampton a good few weeks ago and i was like right let's put these albums on and see how they've aged because i haven't listened to that spice girls album since the 90s it's got some fair boppers on there and i was about halfway through the album when i realized the sound was leaking out of my headphones (laughs) quite a bit and that may well have explained some of the looks i was getting from the residents of southampton also in the TV news, on the 24th of October, Third Rock from the Sun makes its UK debut on BBC Two, a show which I've actually recently started re-watching because it's all on all four now uh, for free. 
I loved Third Rock from the Sun when it first aired um, here and when it got its sort of second life on Channel 4 in the mornings. But man, even watching it now, I'm like, dude, this show really does hold up brilliantly. It's one of those great ways of making something like science fiction accessible, which is you don't let the fact it's science fiction bog it down. It's what worked with Mork and Mindy. Away from the sitcom sphere, it's what works with the soon-to-be rebooted slash resumed Quantum Leap. Science fiction was key to the plot, but it didn't drive each episode. You could have actually done Third Rock from the Sun without aliens and make it about uh, immigrants going to a different country because it's the same thing. It's culture shock. A lot of the humour comes from strange people in a strange land. Yeah, misunderstanding things, not really knowing how the world works or what America is like and being, you know, just incredibly naive to to what the world is. It's also nice to see John Lithgow actually really getting to throw out those comedy chops and also, whilst a buffoon, be a likeable character because we're only a few years away from him being in Dexter. I remember watching, because I'd seen through all of Dexter and then I watched it uh, with my wife, and she did not like that series of Dexter because she could not get past John Lithgow. She thought he was just too creepy because she's always like, because she loved Third Rock from the Sun. She's like, no, he's a cuddly dad type character. I really am struggling to watch him like this, particularly in that opening scene where he appears behind the, the poor girl naked in the bath and then stabs her and then like is in the bath with her. She's like, oh, I'm not sure I can watch this series. This is too weird. Mate, never show a Santa Claus the movie. It'll wreck her. <laughs> but actually, before we get into the show, what's going on in the magazine? Well, we've had so much of the past couple of months dominated by Nintendo. But here we are going into the November issue of Games Master magazine as we reach the end of October. And all over the first two pages of Network, it's Street Fighter. A Street Fighter onslaught, you might say, with some screenshots from Street Fighter Gaiden, a.k.a. Street Fighter EX, the first 3D Street Fighter. Oh, Luke, that's it. Tekken's over, because how can a 3D Street Fighter possibly fail? Mm-hmm. But the news article goes, by taking Street Fighter into the third dimension, Street Fighter Gaiden, or Extra Legend, hyphen EX in the US, threatens to upstage Street Fighter 3. While Capcom make all the right noises about 3, they have confirmed that the game will be another 2D outing. Gaiden is the company's attempt to take Street Fighter's painstakingly refined fighting style, refine it yet further, and pile on the polygonal pounds. In other words, 2D Street Fighter-style fighting with 3D fighters a la the Tekken series. As you'd expect, there are some new faces just waiting for a good spanking, and as usual, they're not the sort of people you'd want to tangle with in real life. Pullum is the only female addition to the crew and specialises in air attacks, a hot favourite being the balletic two-step jump. Mm, sounds like a double foot stomp. Sounds a little bit like one, yes. Which are inherently silly. Additionally, with a name like Doctrine Dark, it's hardly surprising that the second and most promising-sounding new character isn't what you'd call a light-hearted soul. Not content with the usual array of limb-snapping bodily attacks, he brings a series of vicious weapons into play. You'll be dodging or deploying projectile wires and hand grenades, amongst others. The final new boy is Skellimania. Skellimania! Yeah, he sports a natty skeleton suit and has an equally idiosyncratic fighting style. Elsewhere, Capcom's irritation at gamers who over-employ their game's excellent blocking routines has been vented on a new guard break system. Keep piling the attacks onto a defensive opponent and you'll eventually power your way through, leaving the cowardly scum open to a series of combos. There will also be two new combos or bar systems, but the boys at Capcom are still scratching their heads about these. Stay tuned. I've actually never played 
straight up EX. Quite like a lot of people. I've only ever played EX plus Alpha because I felt that was sort of more readily available uh, when it came out on the PlayStation. But I played the heck out of EX plus Alpha, uh, which is where I fell in love with Skullamania. Skullamania is an amazing character. I also had EX plus Alpha. I played it in spite of itself. It wasn't terrible. Yeah, I, I, I like you. I think I played it because I was a Street Fighter nerd. But like, you know, if you'd have put the options in front of me, because I had both of them to play that or X-Men versus Street Fighter, I was playing X-Men versus Street Fighter. Well, speaking of X-Men versus Street Fighter, the Street Fighter news continues with X-Men versus Street Fighter 2, Scrap of the Century. Continuing their current mania for guest appearances and character swapping, Capcom have taken their two best-loved fighters and wedged them together. And it's not just a case of a larger 17-character range either. There's a so far foggily defined tag mode, but whether this means four characters fighting at once, four human players, cooperative modes or what, we simply don't know. What we can confirm is the inclusion of the new guard break system and another mystery, the variable combination two-man combo attacks. So there's that guard break system again. It's going across the board. And I remember the the two-player attacks as well. Like, you know, you bring in two characters, like you tag together Cyclops and Ryu and you do that double one where you do the the Super Hadouken and the Super Optic Blast. Like, it basically just fills the entire screen. I love the X-Men versus Street Fighter series, and particularly those one and two. And, yeah, the the sheer overblown nature of attacks, the the way the Street Fighter characters look, especially the way the, the, the X-Men characters look, it's just so beautiful and such a chaotic, fun game. But, of course, there's one more game people are eagerly anticipating at this time, as to close out this Street Fighter special in the network, we have an SF3 update. Mm-hmm. Now, I wonder, okay, so is this real Street Fighter 3 Third Strike type deal, or is this alpha? I'll read you the update, and then you can be the judge. Despite the presence of her now deliciously solid thighs in Gaiden, Chun-Li, everybody's favourite oriental firecracker, king-ink. <laughs> My skin crawled reading that sentence. Anyway... She has been cruelly axed from Street Fighter 3 itself. She was unavailable for comment yesterday, as she's made up, but will be devastated at Capcom's cruel snub, perhaps. Other details about surely the most eagerly anticipated beta there's ever been continue to slip over Capcom's back fence. A strictly 2D format has now been confirmed, but the manufacturer remains bullish about the game, claiming that the new graphic system is a significant advance, requiring an unspecified new board which should incorporate a CD-ROM. The resolution will be twice Alpha 2s, and the animation has increased from 150 patterns to 500. More worryingly, the characters are only 256 colours, and the game is currently running at a lukewarm 20 frames per second. So that is Street Fighter 3, actual Street Fighter 3, because Chun-Li's in Alpha. Yeah, no, this is proper Street Fighter 3. As, as an aside, uh, not only are we obviously going to be getting the uh, oral history of Games Master soon, but uh, another book that I backed, Like a Hurricane, The Complete History of the Street Fighter series, that is also due soon as well. They've got the samples back. And I am really looking forward to reading up on this this kind of era of the Street Fighter saga. Yeah, because, I mean, there's some banging games coming out at this point, like, and, like, each one of them getting off into their own spin-offs, right? Because, you know, we had Street Fighter 2 and its various spin-offs. Then we're now looking at three... I mean, you just said there are three games, all of which have got their own series. Street Fighter EX has its own series. X-Men vs. Street Fighter then becomes Marvel vs. Capcom, which has its own series. And then Street Fighter 3 has its own series. And that's not to mention Street Fighter Alpha. We get Street Fighter Alpha in this series of Games Master as well. 
So, like, we've got that, you know, that's appearing on the snares. It's going to be out on the PlayStation. Street Fighter Alpha 3 is the third of those Street Fighter games that I had on the PlayStation that I was just playing religiously around, you know, the, you know, in a couple of years' time. It's one of those weird things. I love the Street Fighter Alpha series. But even now, I can just, like, do you, do you know the matchup screen music? Yes. I can just hear that more than any background music. I can just hear that. It just plays in my head as soon as I think of Street Fighter Alpha. I have a similar thing with the voiceover guy. Get ready, fighters. Go for broke. And things like that, like just rattle around my head every now and again. But kind of what I would say with EX, Street Fighter 3 was also a series I never really massively got into. It feels like I was like, because my friend was a big Dreamcast guy and he had all of the Street Fighter 3s on there. So I feel like it was, it almost felt like a Dreamcast franchise as opposed to a PlayStation 1. Obviously, like I was a PlayStation person, PS2 person, that kind of thing. I didn't get my Saturn as we've documented until recently. One of the first things I did, particularly when I got that optical drive emulator, was I went and I revisited the Street Fighter games because I played the PlayStation side of things and I wanted to see how much better the Saturn version was. Oh my God, how the other side had been living all these years. I, I felt know. quite foolish because, man, those games look good. I'm not going to use the phrase Arcade Perfect because people use the phrase Arcade Perfect too much. However, way better. I mean, the PlayStation versions were good, but you see the power of the Saturn shining through, particularly when you've got the extra megabytes in that cartridge at the back. That's what Ooh, I was about daddy. to say. Like, once you've got that cart in the back, you play, you plug in X-Men versus Street Fighter on the Saturn with that cart. Like, it's a whole new world. It really was a case of, like, your eyes were open. It's like, it feels like a whole new game. And then I just got to rediscover it all over again. And I think the added bonus I get at this point by going across to the Saturn version with the optical drive emulator, what don't I have to deal with a lot of? Loading. <laughs> Bloody hell, the loading screens on the PlayStation with the Street Fighter games. Ooh. Pulling teeth. Good evening and welcome to Games Master, television's most comedic piece of factual programming. The girls are having a minor altercation over the possession of my fish finger, so they're not fighting just for my benefit. Good evening, ladies. What is the most violent thing you've ever done? Um, well, once I threw a daisy at a bunny rabbit. I once drove a truckload of old people off a cliff. Well, we're kicking off this episode in style because the mermaids are kicking the shit out of each other using their hands and boxing gloves. Yes, my pure old note says they're busy f***ing each other. I'm amazed Dominic Diamond didn't go for that one. He said he just went for a fish finger joke. I reckon there's an outtake with a f***ing joke in there and they're just like, no, fish fingers, maybe. Uh, but Dominic brags about the viewing figures for the show, saying that 47 million people have tuned into the first episode of Series 6. Now, I did some digging. I couldn't find concrete evidence to back up Dominic's claim here. However, thank you to our Discord member, Tamagon64, uh, who posted up an excerpt from a Enforce magazine from December 1992, which says that the Christmas episode of 1992, which would have been a Series 2 episode, pulled in an estimated 3.1 million viewers. So, if we assume that every series of Games Master has doubled in its viewership, maybe we are getting towards Dominic's claim of 47 million people. I'm just looking at uh, the 1992 annual report for Channel 4, Yes, this is still available to everyone from the Channel 4 website. Fascinating viewing. And I am looking at the top 20 programs at 1992 on Channel 4. And I'm sorry to say, Games Master is not on it. Which is funny as well, because they, the article that, that Tamagon shared from Enforce uh, says here, 
this puts it well on the way to being the most popular Channel 4 program. And I was looking at it, I was like, with 3.1 million? I don't think that's possible. I'll just give you some of the other things that are in the top 20. So, at number 19, the 27th of March edition of Countdown. Yeah. That had 4.9 million. Roseanne had an episode there from April, above 5 million. Do you remember the film The Man With Two Brains? Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, 20th of December, that aired on Channel 4, 5.6 million. Shockingly, 31st of March, Nightmare on Elm Street, 6.8 million. Well, that's delightful to see. Oh, and a series that I definitely remember for all sorts of reasons that would have been running through a pubescent mind, The Chamomile Lawn on the 5th of March, 7.6 million. And you know why that is, Luke? There was a lot of nudity. But notable, Crystal Maze Kids Special from 27th of December, that got 5.9 million. So I would definitely say that Games Master, with its three point something, is probably in the top 30. Yeah, and considering the amount of shows the Channel 4 put out, maybe that is a pretty good achievement. But anywho, while they are fighting over Dom's fish finger, uh, he asks them about the most violent things that they've ever done. And Leanne, our lighter of the mermaid, says that she wants to throw a daisy at a bunny rabbit. While Teresa, our more naughty mermaid, admits to committing geriatricide. That's the exact word that I've got there, because geriatricide is an amazing, amazing word to use. But throwing a daisy at a bunny, Luke, what if the rabbit suffered from hay fever? I mean, well, that's why it's the naughtiest thing she's ever done. That's worse than geriatricide. That rabbit had things to live for. Yeah, at least these other people are just old. Like us. The other thing I liked about this, and they did this again in next week's episode as well, is that when they do the punchline of I once drove a bus full of old people off a cliff, Dom literally pauses so that you, the audience at home, can laugh. Yes. You don't want to miss on him promoting the fact that Danny John Jules is going to be on the show later on. No, he gives an appropriate beat for the audience to react, be it laugh, horror, shock, or general apathy because surly teenagers. Anyway, let's get into our first challenge. What are we playing, Games Master? I like to keep a close eye on the arcades, and for this event, I've plucked three champion arcade players to demonstrate their combo credentials. The idea is simple enough for even the most dim-witted of yours. The player who succeeds in pulling off the biggest combo takes the joystick. However, my champions are likely to be sorely tested by the necessity of using the Nintendo 64's unique joystick. It might be great for 3D games, but when it comes to arcade beat-em-ups, those tiny joystick buttons can be fiendishly difficult to manage. A follow-up from one of my favourite challenges in Series 5, it's King of Combos 96. I was so thrilled to see this back. And the fact that we're doing it on a the next game on in the series, but not only that, kind of like putting a nice sort of spin on it because we're not doing it in the arcade. We're doing the N64 port, which adds another layer of challenge onto it that our players here have not actually had a go on the N64 version prior to coming on the show. I'd actually say the biggest kind of handicap that they face on this challenge is that joypad. That's what Games Master brings up. He's like, you know, hey, in the arcades, the joystick is this, the buttons are this, but on the N64 pad, those buttons are teeny tiny and you may struggle. Like, hey, it works great for 3D games, but what will it do for arcade ports? 
it's a brilliant challenge because it addresses two different things like hey look at the port of killer instinct on the n64 but also look at what the differences are between an arcade game and its ports yeah and this is a game that i actually went and looked at uh between us recording episode one and episode two because while i don't have it for the nintendo 64 it is on the rare replay collection so kind of having a look and seeing how it fares and also getting a chance to play it with a reasonably decent joypad on the Xbox. And how did you get on? Oh, I'm absolutely terrible at Killer Instinct, Luke. <laughs> I had this chat with Ketchup one way. I had him on the Mortal Kombat special, and it really was a case of, I just said to him, I was like, look, Killer Instinct is a game that I just do not get. And it's not a case of, I don't. I get what you've got to do. I just don't think I have got the brain to do it. I don't think I've got the brain that can connect what, is going up in here to my fingers in or, or my thumbs rather in order to, if i'm using my fingers maybe that's the issue but orders on my thumbs in order to actually pull off these combos and stuff i just i s- always have sucked at killer instinct and that's not just like when i first played it i was trying to play it like street fighter in the modern day when i know how to play it i just can't do it again this is like virtual fighter i wish i was good at it yeah oh 100 watching these kids be really good at killer instinct makes me want to be good at killer instinct watching you know Ketchup and Mustard be really good at Killer Instinct makes me want to be good at Killer Instinct. Unfortunately, this game kind of was it for Killer Instinct for quite a long time because the Super NES version of Killer Instinct, the first, that sold really, really well because people were still hungry for it. The Nintendo 64 was a way off. It did good numbers. But Killer Instinct Gold came along and... The Nintendo 64 controller was not suited to this style of game. Also, this game was already beginning to look a bit dated compared to its contemporaries. Also, also, Killer Instinct Gold upset fans of the series by emitting characters, by changing combo movesets, and it it just kind of went dormant for quite some time. In fact, it wouldn't reappear until 2013, when, after being owned by Microsoft for over a decade, Killer Instinct returned on the Xbox One platform. which And it's a notable game as well because it features Rash from Battletoads as part of the game. That was like one of its big things for its third season was just like, hey, by the way, the Battletoads are going to be in this game now. Isn't that cool? And it's actually the first time I was like, well, actually, that does sound pretty cool. I, I'd pretty want to check that out. But I haven't actually played the Killer Instinct reboot or the Killer Instinct third game because I've, I've never had an Xbox One or ever had access to one. Hey, you never know. Maybe I'll get on with that game. Hey, maybe, but (laughs) for podcast listeners, which you all are, Ash is shaking his head. Like you say, like, I agree with you that it's kind of mad. Here we are, 1996. It feels like, you know, Killer Instinct was a big release for us in Series 5. And here, it still feels like a big release because it's the next game and it's on the N64, so it feels kind of brand new. But this is it for, like, 10 plus years this is it for the Killer Instinct franchise. Despite the fact there was always like fan petitions online for Killer Instinct to make a return, it just took them a long time to bring the franchise back. Okay, uh, Philip, you first of all, your nickname is Kingpin. Why why is that? Nah, it's that one one time I had a really big afro and then I shaved it all off and I looked like the character from a Spider-Man card. Uh, What would you say you're happier with, with an afro or with a skinhead? Skinhead, I presume. Skinhead, better than an afro. I would have. I used to have an afro once. No, I didn't. Our competitors for this King of Combos 1996 is Phil Cook, Mark Griffin, and Roy Waterman. However, Dominic Diamonds later on in this segment will forget Phil's name and just call him by his nickname instead. Yep, his nickname is Kingpin, 
and he had an afro once. He's also got dog tags. Because he's cool and it's the style at the time. I had some dog tags around this time. They said Smeghead on them. I just love this here, though, because, you know, Phil talks about how his nickname was the Kingpin because he had this afro once, but then he shaved it off so he was bald. And he said, so I look like that guy from Spider-Man. But he's not talking about the comic book or a movie because there's no movie at this point. He's just talking about the cartoon series because that is what people know of Spider-Man at this point in time. Yeah, they, they know the, the, the purple turtleneck and the white suit Kingpin. Exactly, yeah. What they're basically trying to do with Vincent D'Onofrio now. He's a great kingpin. He's an amazing kingpin. You embarrassed me in front of Vanessa. I'm so glad we're getting more of that. But anyway, I, I really enjoyed uh, kingpin in this. Mark, who we're actually going to see again in next series uh, in the Mortal Kombat 4 challenge, has unfortunately, however, just split up with his girlfriend. I mean, the reasoning is sound. Why did they split up? Well, she started going out with someone else. I mean, that's a good reason, Luke. That is entirely valid reason to break up with someone if they start going out with someone else. One could argue that they may have already broken up with you by that point. But here, we, we talked about the, the pause earlier for the geriatricide joke. This pause here is fantastic. Because Dom says to Roy, you're a bank cashier. And he says, yeah. And there's a pause as the camera cuts to Dominic. And there's a pause as the camera cuts to Roy. And there's a pause as the camera cuts to Dominic. And he's like, well, let's go and check out the news. Good old Roy. I like Roy. I genuinely wanted Roy to win this <laughs> because it's just like, yeah, f*** you, Dom, on behalf of all bank cashiers. Also, why did this become Dominic's thing? For this episode, the idea that Roy is a bank cashier is the funniest thing that Dominic Diamond has heard that week. I'll be honest, it made me laugh a fair bit, so I'm not going to be overly critical. I mean, I'm not going to be either, but it's just that... He doesn't just bring this up multiple times when Roy's doing his challenge and then after. He does it in the news section. Okay, well, we're going to get the guys into their games playing positions. Um, while we do that, and I ponder the merits of a career in high finance, let's take a look at today's news. First, more on the Nintendo 64. These are exclusive pictures of what promises to be the first decent driving game for the console. Rev Limit features no Vickers, but three tracks and four cars and aims to combine the best elements of Sega Rally and Ridge Racer. Speaking of the news section... Yeah, we're kicking things off with an exclusive look at what promises to be the first decent driving game on the N64. Just a shame we didn't get it. This is Rev Limit, four cars, three tracks, and looking to combine Sega Rally and Ridge Racer. Even bank cashiers will be able to buy it, Luke. Except... They won't. No one will. It was in development, I think, right the way up until 1998 for the Nintendo 64. It was going to be an arcade title as well. Also, they then shifted development from the vanilla Nintendo 64 to the 64DD. It was even showcased running in real time to admittedly mixed reception from the press in attendance, but it was shown at the Shisha Shinkei 1996 show. The impressive thing about that is that event has yet to take place in our timeline. That actually doesn't take place until next month, the end of next month, no less. So when Dominic Diamond was talking about exclusive footage, this is really early footage of this game. Yeah, I mean, this is just around the time that it was actually being previewed to various magazines and publications. Like, it started to get its previews in that fourth quarter of 1996, and the visuals were praised. It did get a lot of praise for that, but the gameplay, mm, that was more of a lukewarm response. While it did have a number of game modes, there was no support for multiplayer. That was going to be a big issue. Massive. That's such a stupid thing. We talked about this last week with Wave Race 64 only having a two-player option. 
I think just having a single player option on a racing game like this is ludicrous. But it was previewed, as we said, in a few months' time, 1996. It was also then shown again at Space World 1997, then being touted for a 1998 release. It then had disappeared by the time of E3 1998. But Seta were like, no, 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 it's it's still coming. At this point, it becomes the Chinese democracy of Nintendo 64 games. No, 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 we got Buckethead in. He's coding it in a chicken coop. If this game had come out in 1998 in the state that it was in, it wouldn't have lasted very long or it wouldn't have been picked up by many people. Mario Kart's available at this point. Like, no one's picking this up. As crazy as it is, a prototype of this did eventually appear in 2016 containing a build of rev limit from 1999 it's shocking isn't it absolutely incredible like here we are we're in october 1996 getting our exclusive first look at this game then it's going through various various stages of development and the only known prototype that we can find out there is from three years from now where they're still developing this smegging game probably still bobbins <laughs> yeah if you pay close attention to the hype surrounding the launch of Sega World in London last month, you might be forgiven for thinking that the 12 quid entrance fee was a little steep. Well, Sega have had a change of heart, and now 95% of the hundreds of machines are on free play, which makes it the ideal place to fritter away your money, waste your precious youth, and generally pursue a life of delinquency and antisocial behaviour that will no doubt end in ruin. Man, like... Sega World, what it could have been. You want to talk about something that's really could have been a big thing for, for London, could have been a big thing for video game fans. A monumental failure Sega World of the Trocadero was. Like, bear in mind, you know, we talked about Sega World in the Series 6 Episode 0 episodes, I think in Part 2 of this, where we mentioned it had opened in September. Here we are, October, one month later, they're already making changes to the way that the thing runs. Because the way that Sega World runs is that you pay your 12 quid entry fee, and then you've got to pay for things when you get in there, whether that be the extra rides or that be the arcades. But because people were complaining and parents were really upset about it and were making very, very official complaints to to Sega that it was too expensive to go to, they're now being like, okay, cool, there's a 12 quid entry fee but 95% of the arcade titles are now on free play. However, that caused its own problems because then the place didn't make any money. And because punters weren't going in enough, they moved it down to 10 quid, then later moved it down to two quid. By the end of 1996, I hasten to add. So when you got four months after it's opened, you're now getting for two quid, but all the arcade modes are taken off for free play. And it just did little things to turn around the fortunes. It was too far away from reaching its 1.75 million visitor target, and it just was losing money. Like it lose like 1 million losses from the facility in just those handful of months. By the end of 98, it lost 2 million and then it was closed in 1999. I don't think competing with Namco Wonder Park particularly helped, but this was a PR nightmare for Sega. And it's so sad because aesthetically, this place looked amazing. This place was amazing. It had so much cool aesthetic, but I'll be honest, they probably spent too much on it because they immediately you're running in a deficit. You're never going to start with a zero balance. You're always going to start something like that with a certain amount of debt. But if you're not drawing the people in, doesn't matter how cool it looks. I mean, you had that massive central escalator into the sky. That big rocket escalator thing. Bloody pointless. A pointless endeavour, cool though it may be, but it is a pointless endeavour. Some of the reports that I found said that this cost 45 million to put together 
then a further 1.5 million on advertising. That's a lot of money up front for then this place to lose you money. An incredible, like, it's amazing it lasted three years, really. Is this a bigger mistake than building a beach? <laughs> It's a less expensive one, but yes, it's still a mistake, I guess. I mentioned earlier, it's competing with Namco Wonderland, which is literally like down the road, and you don't have to pay to get into that. And you might meet Derek Lynch. And he might not steal money from you. Allegedly. Allegedly. But yeah, I mean, this whole, this was meant to be a big thing for Sega. They were going to launch loads of these across the world. They had like a hundred other locations they were going to do, and they just didn't. This experiment showed that this is not a money-making venture. I think the first, like the bizarre thing I find about Sega World, when look about it, there's actually a really good Twitter account that I'd recommend called the Sega World London Memorium, which is actually just like, it collates together all of press and photos and, and stories and stuff from it. It's an absolutely fascinating thing. Also, there's a brilliant, brilliant documentary. If you just search for the definitive history of Sega World London, highly recommend you people go and check that out because it's got some wonderful archival footage in there. But so much of it, is focused around Sonic the Hedgehog because he was the Sega mascot. He was the big thing in the early 90s. By 1996, do you think that Sonic is still like a big thing for Sega? Particularly because they're now trying to push Knights as the new thing and there's no Sonic game on the horizon anytime soon. If they had actually produced the Sonic game for the Saturn, the one that they were meant to make, the one that might have changed the fortunes of the system, maybe it's worth hooking your trailer to that blue hedgehog because kids can still play them at home on their latest generation of consoles. But as it is, no Sonic game, the PlayStation is winning. And you're going to the Sega World thing where Sonic's all over the place and there's no Sonic games to be played. There's Virtual Fighter out the wazoo, but there's no real Sonic game to get your hands on. Hollywood and video games have had a troubled relationship since they first got together a couple of years ago. Nine hopes to change all that with the involvement of a company owned by the greatest actor in the world, Robert De Niro. Bob, talk some pish. I say a movie, that's all backstory that's behind what's going on, and you, you show some things in the film, of course, but this you show so many different sides of one situation, one character, one whatever. Bob's gone bonkers! And our last news item here is about Nine, although the full title of it is Nine of the Last Resort. Uh, as Tom explains, there's kind of this rocky relationship between Hollywood and video games, but perhaps Bobby De Niro being involved will be the one that will save us all. Hooah! Oh, wait, that's Al Pacino. That's Pacino. Oh, well, whatever Bobby De Niro does. Cocaine, probably. It's not just Bobby De Niro. He talks a bunch of codswallop. He's also brought some friends, like Cher, James Belushi. Yeah, we've got Jim Belushi involved in this, and Aerosmith. Those hussies of the video games world, because we've had the bloody prototype for Guitar Hero. We've got this. We've had, uh, what is it, uh, Revolution X. That's right. They will literally stick their likenesses on anything, which is probably how they make that much money. And the cast also included Christopher Reeve and Tress McNeil. Maybe, you know, it got some fairly decent reviews when it came out. Like, you know, Dom's talking about, like, maybe this will game that will turn the fortunes around of Hollywood CD-ROMs, but yeah, it looks like it didn't really do that. Basically, in the game, the player has just inherited a hotel called The Last Resort, it belongs to their deceased uncle, Thurston Last, and the hotel is inhabited by nine muses. As the player character enters the hotel, it becomes clear that it is no longer the hospitable place it once was, and its inhabitants live in fear of a pair of squatters known as the Toxic Twins. Only the aeroplane man Salty is brave enough to wander around and talk to the player character, with the player's goal being to reconstruct the Muse machine and banish the Toxic Twins. I can't imagine why it didn't set the gaming world alight with a plot like that. Yeah. 
Welcome back. We are just about to proceed with our King of Combos at 96 event. We've got Roy who's going to be up first. Basically, our three challengers have got to pull off the biggest combo they can on Killer Instinct Gold. They're all uniquely brilliant at Killer Instinct, but it's the first time that they'll have used the Ultra 64 joystick. Well, as we come back to our challenge here, Dom is in the booth with Derek Lynch. And I think I would say this is not Derek Lynch's finest performance he's had on Games Master. I don't think he's a killer instinct guy. Because he was quite good in the King of Combos in the fifth series. But here he just doesn't seem like he really struggles to explain what combo enders are. He's really struggling to explain super linkers or the hyper things and this that, and the other. Like, I think you're right. Like, I think he has been told this is how the game works but he doesn't fully understand how all of this works so he's here trying to explain why this didn't work or didn't come together it's just not as detailed as he was like we really were like gushing about Derek Lynch and King of Combos 95 when he was explaining like why certain combos didn't come together but here he just seems all over the show I don't entirely blame him because I didn't fully understand what he was saying about how the system works so I went to the internet, and as far as I can tell, and this probably explains why I'm so terrible at Killer Instinct, whilst the Killer Instinct combo system differs slightly from system to system and from game to game, they can be boiled down into four basic parts. A certain special move or air attack is an opener, and that begins the combo state. Then that can be followed by a two-hit normal, which is what is called an auto-double. A special move can be used as a linker to extend the combo, after an auto double and then a special move can be used as an ender to close out the combo and cash out the damage and the only way for a player to escape from a combo is through the iconic and this bit i do understand c -c 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 combo breaker you see and when you say it like that it all makes perfect sense in a way like written down on paper and explained like that it all sort of ironically super links together i get the idea you open the combo you can then build hits, you then need to link those hits together with other moves. So it is kind of like building a hand of cards or, I don't know, joining a Duplo train together or something like that. You know, I, I kind of get the idea. But if you were to give me a controller and ask me to do it, even with the moves written down in front of me, I'd probably be like, do, do you have Street Fighter? I think Dom does actually a pretty good job of kind of explaining it as you get into the actual challenge itself. And like right in the first one with, with Roy going up as Saberwolf, he talks about combo enders and tells you like, if the screen pulls back, you have completed an ender. The second he said that, I'm like, cool, right. And now I know exactly what I'm looking out for. And Roy gets three of those and he goes for it. Dom then asked Derek Lynch, what moves is Saberwolf doing? Tell us what moves he's doing, Derek. Scratches, dashes. I, 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 I'm speechless, speechless. <laughs> Derek Lynch does not know, so says, uh, scratches, uh, dashes. He's doing all of the moves, Dom. All of them, all of them at the same time. But Roy gets a 45-hit combo, which he seems genuinely gutted by. Dom then asks Derek, you know, what did he miss out on? And Derek's like, oh, it was the linkers. His fingers must have slipped, which isn't a surprise on that. 
Titan controller. Uh, so Mark is up next, but he's playing his TJ combo and he misses an ender, but does go for his combo in the end. Hits the super move, but no enders meant that it was just a 41 hit combo. And then talk about how the fact he actually missed three super linkers and one other combo ender. And after a while, it's just, I'm just writing words in my notes here. My one saving grace at this point is Roy is in the lead. Come on, Roy. The man that shares a name with my second favourite, Jason Voorhees, is in the lead. Unfortunately, he didn't, he only managed four combo enders. Right. He needed all five. He's super linkers, he missed three. Right, okay. So he missed three super linkers and one combo enders. That's right. And if anybody does understand exactly what that is, please write to us at the address (laughs) at the end of the show. Okay, so 45 is what Kingpin has to be. Best of luck. Off you go. But up next is one of my favourite moments of this episode, which is when Dom clearly forgets what Phil's real name is, because up next it's Kingpin. He's also chosen TJ Combo, and he manages to get three enders, but only has three bits on his super bar. Four then goes for his finisher... And it does immediately look more impressive than Mark's, but it kind of looked similar in number of hits to Roy's. And it's close. Yeah, he gets 49 in the end, which does unfortunately beat out Roy's 45. So, Kingpin is our winner. Right, Mark, uh, the poorest of the bunch, 41 hits it. I mean, still incredible given the short amount of time you've had on the game. Where did it go wrong for you? Oh, I didn't pull off enough end. I didn't pull off the last ender. Did... Did the fact that you haven't used the joystick long, was, was that anything to do with it? Doing it was, like it's quite hard to use it if you just suddenly happen to use it. It's hard to play with. Pathetic, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely pathetic. No, I'm only joking. In the post-match, Mark, who does get to win a joystick next series, uh, says that he just couldn't get off their ender. And they basically then talk about the use of the N64 controller. And I really like this post-match for this because, like, Dom's kind of putting them over. Usually, you know, Dominic Diamond would bury contestants for doing this sort of thing. They were like, oh, the controller wasn't very good. Oh, the controller didn't work. Oh, you know, it was this and the other. And usually he would be like, that's just a pathetic thing to say. But here, he is actually a bit more sympathetic to them. He was like, look, you got a 41-hit combo, and that's really impressive considering that you only just picked this up on the N64 today. But there's always that time of, like, it's just it's struggling to use the controller. Even, like, Kingpin, who won, says, in the arcades, I can get an 80-hit combo. But on that N64 controller, I just really struggled with it. Although Roy does give Dom a little bit of something to work with, because Roy agrees with the controller issues, but he's like, I just ended up playing it safe. And Dom's like, really? You're on a big TV type challenge? You're, you're in Atlantis? You're playing for a joystick? Really? That's when you play it safe? You really are a bank cashier. The last thing I wanted to note of this uh, challenge is that Dom slips over himself right at the start of this because he says this is the first time they've used an Ultra 64 controller, which means there is still a lizard part of Dom's brain that is not used to calling this the Nintendo 64. It's the same part of his brain that calls it Virtua Fighters. <laughs> no, I tell you what I want, what I really want, 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 I want, I want, I want, I want a zig a zig. Ah, however, I have to make do with today's reviews. <laughs> Younger viewers won't remember the fear we once had of a third world war, but you can relive those heady days on the PlayStation with Soviet Strike. The original Jungle Strike-style games were viewed in an isometric 3D position. This one, you can actually have a camera roaming from behind your helicopter. But the best thing is the inclusion of fantastic CD 
FMV sequences. Up first in the reviews, we've got Soviet Strike on the PlayStation, which is part of the Jungle Strike Desert Strike series of games. But now, as Rick tells you, the camera is behind you. And all around, because it's got all fancy-dancy 3D. We're looking at the PlayStation version here, but Luke, guess what? I mean, I know, but I'll, I'll, I'll play along. What's that? Came out for the Saturn in 1997. It's interesting, because like, this was intended to be a 3DO game, and they basically were developing it for the 3DO game, then called 32-Bit Strike. Terrible name, by the way. And then looked at the 3DO and decided, nope, we're not hitching our wagon to this. Let's put it on the far superior PlayStation, even if it's going to add two years worth of development onto it. I'd say it's worth it because I remember playing Soviet Strike and I really enjoyed it. Oh, that's interesting. I've, actually, I don't think I've ever heard of this game. Like, I've heard Nuclear Strike, which is the sequel I, I remember seeing in stores and stuff, but Soviet Strike I'd never heard of. Like, when I went no. to do my research for it, I was, you know, sort of surprised to see it was part of the Jungle Strike series. I definitely remember this and I remember playing it and I liked it. I, I also really liked uh, the Desert Strike on the SNES. Or was it? No, actually, no, I'm wrong. I played Desert Strike when I briefly did a console swap with a school friend and I borrowed his Mega Drive and he borrowed my SNES. It's like hands across the water kind of situation. <laughs> he got kind of Mario Kart and probably the Street Fighter and Donkey Kong and the Six Button Controller. And I got the Mega Drive and Mortal Kombat and Desert Strike and the Sonic games. And I think we did that over a half term. So we had a week with each other's console. Now that's cool. How did you find that that Mega Drive week? It was really cool and it was really good. And I definitely got an appreciation for games that I otherwise wouldn't really get to play much. But I also, I think I was quite happy to have my SNES back at the yeah. end. Because I still had games to complete. Oh, mate, you've got Mario All-Stars. It's got like five games on it. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, they're quite positive about the game here. I like Rick comparing it to Command & Conquer because that's, you know, twas the style at the time with its FMV sequences and stuff. And it's like it's got a real Command & Conquer vibe to it. So immediately, like, you as a viewer know exactly what they're talking about. With Ed just popping in to say that it's a good follow-up to the originals, 85%. I think it's a really good score. And we mentioned the Saturn version earlier. When that did arrive, it did actually have some changes. It included an easy difficulty setting. It also included adjustable brightness, hidden weapons, a lot of bug fixes from the PlayStation version, and also, amazingly, compatibility with the Saturn's then-recent analogue controllers. Mmm. What, you yeah. mean the, um, uh, the, the, the Knight's one? Well, I've got the Knight's one here. I will try it, and I'll let you know. Next up, fighting vipers pits woefully dressed combatants against each other in an attempt to bring knee pads back in fashion. The thing that makes fighting vipers particularly different to Virtua Fighter is that it's a lot easier to get into. Anyone can pick it up and do a flashy move straight away. Well, speaking of the Sega Saturn, it's a game that you've got quite a bit of love for because we had a lot of this in Series 5, but Fighting Vipers here now on the home console market. And it kind of ties into what we were talking about earlier with Killer Instinct Gold being a game that's not pick up and play. Like, to be good at Killer Instinct, you've got to be good at Killer Instinct. But a game like Fighting Vipers, as Ed and Rick talk about here, is that this is a game that if you pick it up and you throw a pan into someone's hands and they've got a broad understanding of fighting games, they'll probably be all right and they'll be able to, you know, throw off some combos and stuff. However, putting in that practice and that time will make you a really, really good fighter at it. Like, Rick clearly does not like fighting games that much because we saw a lot of that in Series 5, but he seems to really enjoy this game and it gets a good 88% score. It's also reviewed in this month's issue of Games Master magazine, mm -hmm. who aren't too far 
out. Do you want to try your luck, Luke? Oh, well, let me try my luck here. Okay. Now, this is, does note that we are reviewing the import version. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, no reviewer is taking credit for this. So while they were busy working out that new graphics style for their layout, they forgot to put the reviewer's name in. But graphics, slightly ropey, really. And the character designs rather unimaginative. Hmm. I thought it looked pretty good in the, the, the clips that we got here. I mean, it's, that's not 90s, but I'd say it's 80. 70. Oh, is it really? Whoa. Yeah. Oh, that is low. That is way lower than I was expecting it to be. Sounds horrible, horrible, horrible <laughs> soft rock soundtrack. What's going on, Sega? Okay, well, this ain't good. So we had 70 for graphics. This sounds like it's below 70. So I'm going to go into the 60s here. I'm going to say 65. Ooh, 10 out. 55. Bloody hell. We haven't had a review this bad for a while. 55. I think I understand why there's no name on this. <laughs> Sega will never send me anything ever again. Gameplay. Not as refined as Virtua Fighter 2, that's for sure. But it plays pretty speedily. Okay. Right. Well, I think maybe we're getting into the higher end of things here. That's certainly not the 90s, but I think it's in the 80s. Uh, 82. 82, exactly. Bang on the button. <laughs> yes. Lovely stuff. You've got time to turn this around, Luke. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hit me with it. Lifespan. Won't last you as long as you'd like, but two players still manages to entertain. I'm going to go one below. 81. Ooh, close. 80. Arr. So, graphic 70, sounds 55, gameplay 82, lifespan 80, judgment. Ultimately, Vipers is rather disappointing. It doesn't do that much which we haven't seen before. It's very good, just not great. Now that sounds like it's in the 70s, but I do think they're going to go slightly higher than the 70. Like my instant reaction there was 77, but I think I'm going to go slightly higher than that. Oh, fuck it, I'll stick with what I had previously. 81. Overall, 81. You got it at the end. You're getting better at this. Honestly, I read like the way that they were speaking there, that sounded like a, like a mid-70s score. Like still in the recommend, you know, our 75 recommend threshold, but not high in that. Also, if you consider, we had two scores in the 80s and all the other scores were below that. By averages, that should have been in the 70s. Maybe so. even in the 60s, given what, 55 for sound? Yeah, not not great at all. But, but just in general, I do really like an accessible fighting game. I think it looks and runs really quite well, given that we know 3D is not the Saturn strong point. This game looks a lot of fun. Like when I was watching the, you know, the video that they had here for the, the review, I was like, you know what, if I had a Saturn, I'd probably check this out because I've never played Fighting Vipers. So yeah, this looks like the sort of thing I would be quite keen to check out. I don't think I would love it. You know, it's probably not as good as like a, a rival schools or something like that, where it's like, a, oh, I've checked that game out and it's amazing. But I think I'd probably have a, a fun little afternoon with it or maybe a couple of hours. Right, I'm going to share something with you at home. At the moment, my whole body is tingling. It can either be that my pants are too tight or that our latest celebrity guest arrival is imminent. Now, if you were a betting man, do you think that it's because Dom's pants are too tight or because of the celebrity challenge? I mean, I questioned, is he having a stroke? Are his pants too tight? There's only one way to find out, Luke. Well, let's head on over to Games Master and find out what we're playing. Just for the change, I thought I'd give today's celebrity a really difficult challenge. And uh, what better game to test his skill than Wipeout 2097 on the PlayStation? Tearing around in a futuristic spaceship, my contestant has two laps in which to secure first position before he crosses the finishing line. 
A host of special power-ups are available to help them on its way, but make no mistake, it's accurate steering, above all, that will secure victory. This is a challenge, Ash, that's all about coming first. Get the gags in whilst you can, but oh, Luke, it's Wipeout 2097. Isn't it mad? Like, we've just had Wipeout in Series 5. Here we are, two episodes into Series 6. The sequel is here. The slightly bigger, slightly more exciting sequel with a very, very cool soundtrack. I mean, you mentioned when Wipeout kind of hit our timeline back in the last series that for you, this is when you kind of really got into the series. I have so many happy memories of 2097, of the feel of the vibe of it. Something that I actually didn't realise until I was researching it for this is that it isn't just, oh, Wipeout and then Wipeout 2097. Wipeout was actually set in 2052. This is 2097. And therefore, they kind of write off a lot of the changes between the two games as being, well, you know, 45 years has gone by. Things have moved on. I really like the aesthetic for this because they take a lot of influence from like Japanese culture and stuff. And in a way, it's kind of got a cyber cycles vibe to it. That sort of like a Kira neon style thing to Blade it. Blade Runner. Yeah, Blade Runner. Exactly like that. And it makes the game look really cool. And then when you combine it with that soundtrack, like if you listen closely on this episode, you can hear them playing Firestarter in the background, the, the Prodigy track. But it's one of those things like when I was watching Danny play the game, and you're just listening to the music and you can hear that awesome, awesome beat for Firestarter. It really did make me want to pick up a copy and play this game. Now, there's an interesting note about different versions of this game because it came out for the PlayStation in 1996 and 1997 came out for Windows and the Sega Saturn. On the Sega Saturn, it supports the 3D analog controller, the Knights one. There's actually proper 3D control with a standard Sega controller, albeit one that you have to buy aftermarket. However, on the PlayStation, the only analog controls it supported were via the weird, twisty Negcon controller. Yeah, I saw this in Categoris's video that he did recently about like weird PlayStation controllers. And it's a controller I don't think I've ever re... I don't completely remember it being out, but like, you know, when you see one and you're like, oh God, I do remember those. Or at the very least, like seeing them in magazines or something. I don't think I ever saw one in the wild. I played on one, but it was in a shop. Right. I did not get on with it. I mean, I'm pretty sure you and I are the only people I've ever met that had the Resident Evil 2 controller. Like that sort of wonders like, oh, I saw that in a shop, but I never actually had one in the wild. Like you're the only other person I've ever met that's actually had one in their house. It was okay. It was it was weird to play on. <laughs> like it was it was like oh I'm really used to playing Resident Evil two a certain way. Now I've got to relearn how to play this game. Yeah, I, I do like a gimmick controller. I mean, I bought the 3D controller for the Saturn, Luke. It's funny when I was watching that Catacurus video. You know when they did uh, the Wu Tang Clan game? Here comes the pain. Oh my god, that controller is ridiculous. The big Wu Tang logo controller. Dude, it made me really want to be like, that just looks like a really fun thing to have on a shelf. Very pricey. I'm, I'm never going to own one, but... Oh, yeah, that's a comfortable three figures. Yeah, exactly. But it looks like a... It's an aesthetically pleasing controller. Not a very comfortable controller to hold. However, it's as excessive as building a, a beach next to a beach. Nice throwback. Thank you very much. Back to Wipeout 2097. Please do. As with the first instalment, developed by Psygnosis... The design, the logos, the promotional art and all that stuff, that was also designed by the Designers Republic. Seven-month development cycle. That feels insanely short It does, nowadays. doesn't it? But then again, originally, this was going to be a track add-on pack 
for the original Wipeout. No sequel had been planned. And at some point they just decided at some point they just decided that no, it's it's actually going to be a entirely new full game. They did make a number of concessions as well. They actually kind of fixed the difficulty curve because they suddenly realized that the first game had been so popular and the PlayStation was taking off. They would do well to make this easier to pick up, easier to play, to make it just more accessible to the average end user. And I think that is why I fell in love with this game at that point. Like I got the muscle memory watching this challenge. Oh, yeah. Feel it. I could just feel it. Like, particularly when you could hear that music kick in and I'm just like, boom, boom, I could feel myself just sat there kind of like probably six inches from a 14 inch TV. The volume on those little portable speakers turned up way too loud. I also like the fact that Games Master says that accurate steering is vital to this challenge. And steering will be a big thing when we get to it, particularly when we come to the controller choice that Danny John Jules has made. Yes. Now, we're very lucky tonight to have a special guest who comes from a show that gets even more ratings than us. We get 75 million, they get 76. Please welcome Red Dwarf's Danny John Jules. Welcome to the show, Danny. How you doing, man? All right? Well, sir, well. Okay, listen now, Danny, uh, you've been playing a cat in Red Dwarf now for, is it six series or seven series? It's seven now, yeah. Wait, when's the new series back? Uh, January. In, in January. And speaking of which, that is our celebrity for this week. The cat from Red Dwarf, Danny John Jules, is here. It's the only show, Ash, that managed to get more viewers than Games Master, because although he had said 47 earlier, he's now upped it to 75 million. However, Old Red Dwarf gets 76, according to Dominic Diamond. However, when I checked Wikipedia, the first episode of Series 8 got about 8 million viewers. So I don't know where Dom's getting his information from, but it's not exactly going along with what I was reading up. These viewing figures, they're fickle things. Maybe we don't have the full story because I'm certain Dominic would not exaggerate. Well, that's the thing. Is like He's clearly got the business inside track. He's in the TV industry. He knows more about this than I do. However, it is so cool to see Danny John Jules here, particularly as well, because as you know, we'll find out a bit later on, he's clearly a gamer. He's clearly really into his, his video games and this and the other. And this is an exciting time for Red Dwarf because after being off the air for a number of years, we're about to head back with the boys in a slightly, you know, different version of the show because it's not going to be all Chris Barry this time. You know, Kachansky's coming in, but Red Dwarf is back in a couple of months time in a couple of months time and danny john jules had been part of it from the very beginning since 1988 a character he had been playing for eight years at this point off and on and spoilers a character he would go on to play for at least another 25 years more than that even i just who knows if we are truly done with red dwarf at this point I genuinely suspect we might get one more. I think we're going to get another one because we had the movie, didn't we, a couple of years ago. I think there's, there's probably at least one more adventure out there for the boys. I know that movie got some mixed receptions from some people. I had a bloody lovely time with it. Yeah. I thought it was proper silly fun. Yeah, and you know, I, I have this with Red Dwarf. Like, I guess you and I, uh, we bumped into each other because we both won tickets to go to a screening put on by Dave at the Prince Charles Cinema for the first episode, which I think we watched live along with the TV broadcast of it. 
and then for episode and then we got to watch episode two directly afterwards i remember like chatting to you afterwards and being like this is kind of what i love about red dwarf it's a proper like let's take these guys and put them into a really weird scenario so i really enjoyed that second episode but i just i like silly fun red dwarf like i like it when it takes itself seriously as well but it's red dwarf like i'm quite happy for it to be very silly nonsense i've just checked my phone because i've still got the photos on there it was red dwarf 11 we also got the the red dwarf 11 tote bags marked with the jupiter mining core as well as the poppadoms and curry popcorn and uh, i think i've still got the leopard strength lager yes that was great because they had starbug there they had the scutters and yeah I actually think that was one of the first times we met in person. We talked online. Yeah. I was sat there scrolling Twitter and I saw a post from you. I looked <laughs> behind me and you were sat in like the row behind me in the uh, theatre. And I'm yeah. like, oh, Luke, hello. I was trying to think if that was the first time or if it was the London Podcast Festival when you were doing sound for the Attitude Era podcast. I can't remember if that was in the same time period or it was the year before. No, I think that would have been 2017. Okay, I'm fair fairly enough. confident. There you go. So yeah, it was like the first time we actually probably met in person then. But it was a really fun evening. I actually really enjoyed it. And as I said, I enjoyed watching the episodes as well. And that's why I kind of got this big sort of nostalgic thrill seeing Danny John Jules here and just thinking about Series 7 and, you know, the big return for Red Dwarf. And I remembered very very clearly and i'm gonna send you uh something here i'm gonna send it to you on whatsapp this will be out in the in the january the radio times cover announcing the red dwarf was coming back and being in the back of my parents car as we were going back from the sainsbury's that we'd bought you know this issue of the radio times from and just reading and reading and reading and reading all the stuff they did inside about the return of red dwarf and the reason I wanted to make note of this is because you mentioned earlier some dog tags that you had. This is from inside the Radio Times, where it has got, I, I don't know if it's the same dog tags. Those are the exact same <laughs> dog tags that I had. And I'm starting to go through some storage crates and some stuff that I've got in storage. I'm relatively confident I still have the Smeghead dog tag somewhere. That's amazing. Anyway, but enough of our like trouser nostalgia. Danny John Jules obviously had been the cat since 1988, but before that he was born in Paddington, brought up in Notting Hill, attended Rutherford School Paddington from 1972 to 1977. He learned gymnastics there, and boy howdy, that's shown throughout his career. Both of his parents are from Dominica and travelled to the UK aboard the HMT Empire Windrush. His mother worked in the courts and he had a brother who was a barrister. He did have a career before Red Dwarf. If you look carefully in the background, you can see him in such things as the Little Shop of Horrors, amongst other small parts. The Cat was his first big recurring TV role, although special shout out as Barrington in Maid Marian and Her Merry Men. So, I mean, he's here essentially to promote Series 7 of Red Dwarf. What do you do? You make of series seven because there's some, you know, some fairly big changes in there. We mentioned Chris Barry's not around for all of the series; he's only in there for four episodes. So Chloe Annette comes in to play Kachansky. But you know, there's no live audience for it. Grant's gone from the show, so it's and now it's all just Naylor. Like, what, what did you make of series seven and, and therefore series eight? I will still laugh at them and I will still find entertainment in them. And of course, it gave us the Munchkin song as well, lest we forget. But it jumped the shark and it's a shark that they didn't jump back over 
until Red Dwarf 10. I like series seven. I think series eight is when they go back to the dwarf and they, you know, and everyone's back alive again. I think it really misses so much of the magic. Then it just becomes a sitcom. But there's still stuff within series seven that I do like. But like I wrote an article for a movie uh, review website years back. Actually, I think it was for when in the lead up to 10 or 11. And I counted down my favorite episodes of Red Dwarf. And when I look back at that article now, it's all the early ones. It's all series one through six is basically where all of my favorite episodes come from. I mean, yeah, series seven and series eight has some great moments. I actually think whilst never properly resolved, the ending to series eight is one of the all-time great Red Dwarf cliffhangers. I just think bringing Kachansky back was a mistake because also, and this is no insult at all to Chloe Annette, it wasn't C.P. Grogan. This was not the Kachansky that Dave Lister of this universe had spent the past, like, off and on six series wanting to find a way to get back, move to Fiji and buy a sheep and two cows and breed horses. This was not that, this was not that Kachansky. It threw the balance off. I think if you'd brought Kachansky in, you could have probably rolled with it and evolved. If you'd done away with the studio audience, you could have rolled with it and evolved. And if half of the creative team had left, you could have rolled with it and evolved. But all three at once. It's also interesting for Red Dwarf as well, because like, you know, like Naylor's kind of running the ship here and they, they kind of, he wants to get it so you can do US syndication of it. He's only got like a handful of episodes to make and then it can be syndicated into the US. But also at this point, he wants to do the movie, the, the oft talked about Red Dwarf movie that is going to go into development for like 1999, I think is when it sort of really seriously starts becoming a thing again. And then it's just year after year after year after year of we're going to do it. We've got the funding. No, the company's gone under. Or oh, this person in Australia has, is going to fund it but they actually don't appear to be real. You know, this and yet, and like the movie just, it never came to be. I mean, like the, the from what I can gather, you know, reading up about it, it sounded like it would have been a fun thing. I don't know whether it would have been, you know, worth making, but it certainly sounded like a fun concept for a, you know, for a Red Dwarf movie. I remember reading about Red Dwarf the movie, I'm fairly certain in some of the later issues of this magazine, and this magazine ceased publication, like 93, 94? Uh, someone listening will correct me about that, I'm sure. But basically, that movie, that that was a proper kind of like Chinese democracy, Duke Nukem Forever situation. And eventually, when we did get a Red Dwarf movie, uh, it was The Promised Land. It was that one that we got a few years ago. It was super low budget, but it was also kind of fun and involved kind of a very unexplored area, which is what happened to the rest of the cats. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hair is very important to me. Oh, yeah, and Danny. me too. Now, the hair, your hair on the show is cat is fantastic. How'd you get the hair like that? Uh, well, the first four series, my hair was processed, which is uh, sort of the equivalent of a perm, really. And uh-huh. uh, the last three, I had to wear a wig because I cut it all off uh-huh. for another play. Could you give me the name of the wig guy? Because I've got this. They said it made me look like Brad Pitt. Well, it's not quite working, Dan. <laughs> Actually, who made my wig again? Um, oh, oh, God. Wig, wig. Mm, I can't remember. Wigfield. 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 That's it. Wigfield. Wigfield. I knew there was a gag somewhere. I forgot it. It was written on my wrist. Okay. Right. While I get on the phone to my ex-wife, if you want to see how Dana John Jules tackles Wipeout 2097, join us after the break. In Fighting Vipers, first you have to master the power moves, but to totally humiliate your opponent, fight without armor. 
UK, that might be too tricky for you just now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Captain's Log, Stardate 1992. Flight recordings are being sent to us by three important space vessels. The Liberator, the TARDIS, and Red Dwarf. It hasn't worked. What happened? Well, Lister altered the timelines. Give me the Star Trek, Marco Jacko. Where is it? I lost it. Absolutely ridiculous. Think of something. I'm thinking. Perhaps we could try a mind swap. Captain's Log Supplemental. I've agreed to the loan of my first officer's holographic mind print. Well, it'll take a few seconds for the timelines to sort themselves out, and then we'll see if it's worked. BBC Video have boldly brought us Doctor Who, Blake Seven, and Red Dwarf. Well done, Mr. Spock. Uh, Red Dwarf Danny John Jules is our special guest tonight, and now Danny is about to pit his skills on a Wipeout 2097. Driving me around the bend just for a change is Dave Perry. Dave, is there any truth in the rumour that when you take your bandana off, your hair is even bigger than Danny's? Yeah, yeah, it's just, it's just a rumour. I don't really want to, uh, to, to reveal any trade secrets. But it's but, certainly bigger than mine. But we've, we, we've been using the combs in the, in the green room. <laughs> well, we come back from the ad break, and Danny John Jules is now wearing sunglasses indoors. He has a reason for it, and it is entirely, entirely valid. It's the same reason why when I'm doing rock band karaoke, if I get up on stage to do a song while also playing the guitar controller, I will wear sunglasses. It's for the exact same reason. Well, we'll get into that reason in a little bit. However, we know the reason why Dave Perry won't take off his bandana. It's because his hair is big. And as Dominic Diamond says, is it bigger than mine? 
talking about the hair here, Luke. Mm-hmm. But how cool is Danny's jacket? Oh, the Red Dwarf crew jacket. Yeah, it's yeah. rad. Yeah. Oh, we didn't even mention, canonically, we now know in Games Master Lore, uh, Dominic and Wigfield got a divorce. Yeah. Guess the honeymoon was over. Well, I mean, he did fall from heaven. And maybe Wigfield stuck up there and he's just like, well, now I have to get divorced. I'm stuck in Atlantis. With two mermaids who are fighting over me fish fingers. <laughs> the thing is, though, about Dave's commentary here, you know, his preamble, this is our first Dave appearance in, in Series 6, is he says, unlike the first game, where if you hit the walls, you're just stopped. In 2097, if you hit the walls, you just keep going. That is proven false at least three times in this challenge. As soon as he said that, I'm just like, that's bobbins. That's <laughs> not true at all. Thankfully, Danny, who is a gamer, is not that good of a gamer, and therefore we do get it shown fairly soon to be utter shock. Because yeah, Dom's really putting him over saying, hey, most of the celebs we get in here are really bad at these games, but hey, Danny's really good. And like Dave, Dave Perry's like, yeah, we saw him in the green room earlier. He can get the turbo charge. This might be one of the most difficult challenges we've ever set for a celebrity. And all he has to do, like in real life, is come first. I like Dom's comparison to Mario Kart. You know, it's a good way to kind of get everyone up to speed with what he's doing. One of the first things he does is hit a wall and almost comes to a complete standstill. And I'm like, well, what was that again, Dave? What what happens if you hit walls in this game? With this one now, when you hit the side, you can keep on going, so don't let that bother you. He doesn't do bad. Like, he's soon making his way past 10th place, 9th place, 8th place. As he goes into 8th place, that's where you can just hear in the background, boom, ding, 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 boom, ding, ding, ding. Thankfully, not so loud that it gets a copyright strike on YouTube with the versions that we're using. He makes a few mistakes. I mean, he does prang the wall a few times. He also goes into the recharge pit, which he didn't really need to do. He's in six as he goes into the second lap. And that's when we see that he's not just using a PlayStation joystick. Oh, no, my friend. He's gone method. He's used to being in the cockpit of Starbug. That's what it is. They say on commentary, this was his choice. He opted to use this controller as opposed to using a, a, a joypad. I guess, like, maybe if he'd have played a couple of games in the green room, like, between the two things, he just decided that he was more comfortable playing with that. But also, it, it looks like it's really uncomfortable on his knees to be using this sort of peripheral. Yeah, because, I mean, he's essentially using a steering wheel peripheral, which is also weird because they're not cars. But roll with it, I guess, as, as he actually somewhat does. I don't know, maybe if he is a gamer and he does have a PlayStation at home, Maybe he's big on like your F1 type games or your Ridge Racers more than Wipeout, but that's where he has the steering wheels. He's used to playing it with that. So maybe it's not even that he just saw it in the green room. He's just like, no, I'm used to playing with the steering wheel on these racing games. He's clearly played Wipeout before. I would wager maybe if he does have one of these at home, he's just like, no, I'm just more comfortable. I, this is why I use at home. So I'll use this here as well. But he continues in that second lap and he eventually gets probably one of the most useful power-ups he could have gotten in this challenge, the autopilot. It's exactly what it says on the tin and it will take over control of your car and neatly glide you through, taking as many places as you can during its brief runtime. And honestly, it finishes him in second and that first place, it's within grasp. It is painfully close. He is a gnat's dick away from taking first place in this scenario and he just cannot get past him and then the crushing blow here is on that final turn 
he just smacks straight dab into a wall. And what happens if you hit a wall in this game again, Dave Perry? With this one now, when you hit the side, you can keep on going, so don't let that bother you. Oh, that was it, yeah. You stop dead as a disco. Yeah, because that's what happens. He just stops dead. You can hear the crew literally gasp and go, oh, and it actually really reminded me of when we were at the taping for Series 8 and we were for the FIFA challenge. And you'd, like, you'd miss a shot and we were like, oh! It really did feel like everyone on that set went, oh! When he hit that wall and realized he wasn't going to make this challenge. Because that's it. Like Once he hits that wall, the challenge is over. Yeah, I mean, he, he still holds second place. Which, it's an admirable thing on Wipeout 2097, particularly even if he is used to kind of the steering wheel peripheral. It's a studio set. There are bright lights. He's kind of got it balanced on his knees. It, it's it's not an ideal circumstance, but oh, absolutely gutting. Gutted for him. And he looks gutted as well, particularly when he says... Oh, man, I can smell his aftershave. <laughs> yeah, you can hear Dom laugh as he sort of walks off as Danny and Josh goes, oh, man, I could smell his aftershave. Dom is bigging up how well he did, and Danny says, oh, I was lucky. Autopilot took me through those last three in quick succession, and I was shocked, got a bit confused, and realised I only had one guy in front of me. But as at this point here, he reveals why he is wearing sunglasses indoors. Because I just was like, oh, well, Danny's wearing glasses now, and I didn't really put two and two together, but he basically just explains here that in the green room, when they were playing on a TV, it was quite clear to see, but now they're on the set, there's light, there's glare... And he just had the sunglasses on because it was a much easier way to play the game. He seems genuinely gutted he didn't get it. I feel like Danny John Jules appears to be the sort of person that is not only a fan of video games, but is a fan of Games Master, and he wanted to win a golden joystick. Sorry you won't walk away Thank with you. the Games Master golden joystick, uh, but best of luck with the series of Red Dwarf. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight's special guest, Danny John Jules. Okay, now it's time for this week's feature, that part of the show that viewers everywhere are already calling this week's feature. When an industry gets nostalgic about its past, you can tell it's reached full maturity. Unfortunately, I haven't, which is why I'm wearing an atrocious 70s shirt as a cheap gag about retro games. This podcast is entirely built on nostalgia. And people think that nostalgia is a brand new currency. However, this feature here shows that even in 1996, there were people that were trading in nostalgia. It's just nostalgia was for things that had come out 10 years before that, which were things like the Specky and the C64. It is mind-blowing that 1996, we have a retro gaming exhibition going on at HMV. I'm guessing the Oxford Street, the lower Oxford Street or the upper, basically a big bloody HMV is having this retro gaming exhibit. Going all the way back to Pong, Luke. 1978 was the release of the Atari 2600. Like, you know, a retro thing now would include the Mega Drive and the SNES, but in this current timeline, those are still Bucky O'Hare's new consoles. The Mega Drive and the SNES, at this point in time, are not considered retro. So retro is the 2600, the Specky, the C64. Probably your uh, console of choice will be there as well, your Amstrad. It's amazing how the memory tricks because Dominic says, you know, Namco Classics is coming out for the PlayStation. And of course, there were a load of retro arcade collections for the PlayStation and for the Saturn. And I think my brain just kind of tunes them out a bit. And I, I don't necessarily think of those as being 
1996 to 1997 but lo and behold there they were and i suppose around this time i was already beginning to play with emulation on the windows 95 pc yeah it's funny isn't it because like you know he mentions the namco and the taito collections and stuff and you're right like if you just said this to me i picture ps2 boxes that have got them on as opposed to being these ps1 things but it also makes sense that they were these ps1 releases and now as don mentions here it's just a way for a publisher a lazy publisher to make some very easy money by re-releasing old tat that is readily available elsewhere konami <laughs> but it's just a capcom yep namco namco uh yeah yeah i mean we'll, we'll can go through the list uh, rare nintendo nintendo yeah <laughs> <laughs> everyone sega yeah Ooh, all sega stuff. you and your bloody origins collection oh i'm so glad i didn't buy it like and tom campbell is an incredibly charismatic man is the only person in the world that would have made me want to buy that sonic origins collection yeah but here we are seeing dominic going back to his roots. I mean, 1978, we start in, Labour is in its death throes, it's the winter of discontent, the Atari 2600 has landed, Don was eight years old, the machine was very successful, but it was also very expensive. It cost £100, and at that time, in a truly Python-esque move, they were apparently living in a hole in the street, probably fed with a handful of hot gravel. This was the first home console that you could buy it was very successful because it was mostly arcade conversions things like uh, phoenix which you can see here i think dom kind of undersells the appeal of the 2600 it wasn't just that it was arcade ports it was also that it was interchangeable cartridges like a lot of the home consoles he would have bought at you know around that period of time but anyhow in the states were just it was a pong console and that was it or like variations of pong but the 2600 was just like no here's actually like you can do hundreds of different games on this by just changing out the cartridge. This was the first computer I ever owned, the ZX Spectrum. This was a great little machine that had 14,000 titles. There was a real gaming boom around this. It also saw the first of a systems war. You had the ZX Spectrum and you also had the Commodore 64. Commodore 64 only had 10,000 titles released for it. Pretty much the same games, but it was a lot bigger, bulkier, a lot less fashionable. I had a ZX Spectrum and we always thought that people who had Commodore 64s smelled a little bit but we then move on to what was dom's first computer that he owned he's also changed his shirt i do like how he's changing costumes throughout this segment it's a visual gag hence why we're not really mentioning it too much on this but he is dressing appropriate for each individual console or computer that he looks at and yeah it's 1982 he's dressed like a modern romantic also the first systems war spectrum zx81 versus the Commodore 64. Don was a specky house and he thought people who owned the Commodore 64 just smelled a bit. I was a C64 household, so I resemble that remark. You you don't smell much. What I love about this feature, thank you, uh, what I love about this feature is that this is, we've we've talked about this before with Games Master, is that when people talk about video game history, and I'm actually guilty of this because I literally just did this a moment ago, you kind of look at it from an American perspective, like out in America, that's what they were really geared towards, the sort of Pong consoles and stuff, but here, it's the boon of the British computer scene with the Spectrum, with the Commodore 64 and stuff, and that's really kind of what carries through the 1980s. The NES doesn't have the same foothold here that it is in the States because people were already on their computers. The Master System did well, but that's because they've always done fairly well in Europe. But we are a computer scene. And when Americans make YouTube videos and be like, the video game crash of 1983, or no one made video games until the NES, like over here in Britain, we're like, no, no, we were doing loads. 
we had the bedroom programmer revolution of the 1980s and we were making nothing but video games for for years on end yeah i mean some i mean the oliver twins and codemasters and dizzy and and rare as we see here back before they were rare when they were ultimate play the game we see lunar jetman lunar jetman released for the zx spectrum in 1983 also another also ran in the home con in the home computer war in britain it was released on the bbc micro a sequel to jetpack this is another game that you can go and play on that uh, rare retrospective it's on part of that I probably would have played this on the BBC Micro because we probably had this at school. That when I was in primary school and stuff, and we had BBC Micros. We also see Night Law, which is another game by Ultimate Play the Game, aka Future Rare. Also another immensely popular groundbreaking game. Also another game you can go and play on the Rare Retrospective because I literally just have been working my way through all these games on that Rare Retrospective and being quite terrible at most of them. It's a shame that like they seem like they'll be right at home on the um, the Evercade, but we'll probably never see them on there because of the, the Microsoft exclusivity. I mean, Evercade are starting to get some fairly interesting little licenses. And I think while they're never going to be the big seller, the PlayStation 5 level or the Xbox level or, you know, the Switch level... They're a respectable little business that are kind of appealing to quite a niche market and treating titles with a degree of respect. So as long as the money side can be worked out, I imagine there are a few publishers that might go, yeah, go on then, you little scamps. We also get to see a bit of Manic Miner, which may look primitive, but hey, without that, Mario would have been helping people cog their U-bends. But speaking of U-bends, we have an interview here. Yes, a man that is synonymous with British gaming, and also, much like Dominic's rating claims, exaggerations. But at this point, Luke, I would like you to indulge me, if you would, as I attempt to summon someone that is perhaps a bit better equipped to talk to us about Peter Molyneux. All I need to do is look and turn into this mirror and say Molyneux, Molyneux, Molyneux. Hello, you. <laughs> See, normally that's charming. This time it's just kind of sinister. I'm really glad to welcome back to Under Consultation, Guru Larry, Larry Bundy Jr. Sir, it is wonderful to have you back. Oh, thank you very much. It's an honour to be here again, sir. We came to this episode and we came to this segment. And as soon as I was watching this episode for research... I wrote your name down because Aww. what we have here is, as far as I know, probably one of the first retro gaming exhibitions that would have appeared in the UK. Hmm. But more importantly and more relevantly, a man that is synonymous with the British gaming industry and to a degree is synonymous with some of your output. Oh, Billy Mitchell. No, the other one. Oh, OK, the other one. OK, yes. Oh, him. He who shall not be named. <laughs> but... And just to address the first bit, so here we are in timeline, it's 1996, and HMV have got this exhibition on. And so I'm wondering, for you in 95, 96 at this time, yeah. what were you playing? Uh, 95, 96, I'd have just bought PlayStation 1. Sega Saturn and PlayStation 1, I would have bought by then. I was actually working in Future Zone at the time, just before the launch of the PlayStation, and I was getting all excited and that. I had it on a massive sort of video wall in the back. I was just playing that demo disc you get with the PlayStation over and over. Were you only playing the latest generation games or were you still going back to older computers and older consoles? I would be pretty focused on the more modern systems at that time. I probably still had them all still plugged in and that. Probably the Super Nintendo especially because I had a uh, 
a device that played copy games on it, a super wild card. I used to get games, like big pile of games, like 15 quid, like a thousand pounds worth of games, 15 quid from discs. So I still I probably had that in that respect. But um, yeah, I was mostly focused on the PlayStation, especially at that time. Even the Saturn sort of dipped off a bit for me. At what point did you kind of start to, I guess, look backwards more in your in your life towards older games i think it wasn't until i got onto television properly uh that i was looking at retro well i didn't consider it to be retro just just old stuff and that all these all these old games and systems you're just picking them up at boot sales and that for a couple of quid you know absolutely junk nobody wanted them so i started picking up the odd piece of interesting you know anything that interested me because it was going on cheap then because nobody wanted it so it's always on heavily discounted so i was getting it like that but i was picking it up mainly to do show stuff on the tv on my show on x league and stuff like that doing retro stuff like that and then i got heavily focused on doing fmv games for some reason i got told off for that so do something else apart from fmz games i find fmv games fascinating now because back at the time there was one of the complaints were always with fmv games was not much gameplay and quite short and therefore i could never really justify spending the money but in modern times uh with good old games and of course emulation and everything like that it's not quite such a fiscal investment to Mm. go back and look at these things well they 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 thought it was going to be the the next big thing fmv games even elon musk put all his money into doing um a, uh, a commercial you know crossover with sega as well elon musk that's how he started his company he got into gaming before electric cars and stuff like that. But yeah, he thought it, uh, FMV games is the future. So this feature really has two parts, one of which is going around the exhibition and we see a bunch of old games. We see Lunar Jetman. We, of course, see Pong. Uh, we also see Night Law. There's a lot of like proto-rare games in this. Mm. Ultimate play the game. Yeah. I, I mean, to be fair, they picked two absolute bangers of games to show because Lunar Jetman and Night Law, I mean, they're both on that rare replay collection that came out for the Xbox they both still really hold up. I'm <clears> still terrible at both of them. <laughs> I've only had 30 years practice. Uh, to be honest, I was probably better at them in the 1980s yeah. than I am now. Oh, you had more time back then, though, didn't you, really? Didn't have to pay bills in the 1980s. No. Someone else did that for me. <laughs> yeah, if only nowadays. But the other component to this kind of little featurette mm. is a toilet interview, as is Dominic Diamond's tradition. Yes. With one Peter Molyneux, with hair. With with hair and yeah. with with a interesting choice of fashion combinations with a mm. very high turtleneck. Yeah. He must be roasting his ass off in that getup because it probably got a couple of portable lights in a camp in a toilet mm. with Dominic Diamond. Yeah, he had a tiny, tiny little room, isn't it? I don't know, maybe maybe he's quite cold-blooded. But here we are in 1996. So 1994, Bullfrog were bought by EA. Hmm. and Molyneux already had a fairly senior position in EA at that point as well anyway. By 1997, he'd had enough of EA, and he went off to form Lionhead Studios. And in fact, as we get to the end of 1996, magazines and trade are beginning to kind of report that Molyneux may not be happy. Uh, Why this is, is still fairly open to speculation. Molyneux is sad. Yeah, Molyneux is sad. Apparently... What happened was he went out <laughs> drinking with a friend, they got drunk, and then he wrote his resignation letter, and his friend who he was drinking with hit send. That is a drunk post. Yeah, but it was sent straight to the head of EA. So there was no take backs, and then Molyneux was like, oh, it was it was all, I, I was drinking. Whoops. 
but either way, he's on his way out and he's going yeah. off to form Lionhead. Which was named after his hamster. That I did not know. Yes, that's he named it after his hamster. I don't know why he got a hamster called Lionhead, but that's what he's named after, yeah. I don't know what is more unusual in this. Naming your development studio after your hamster. In fact, in the grand scheme of naming development studios, it's not that weird. There are no. far weirder development studio names out there. But what sort of mind calls a hamster Lionhead? <laughs> I mean, surely it was just called Lion or something because it had a mane or something. What sort of hamster has a mane? What's he doing to the hamster <laughs> where it has a mane? It's probably giving it a load of false promises, you know. Which neatly <laughs> brings us round to, I guess, Peter Molyneux's reputation because just straight out of the door, Peter Molyneux has, in part, been responsible for some excellent games. It's oh, yeah, not it's like brilliant. yeah, all-time classics. Like I mean, Populous. Yes, Theme Park, uh, Syndicate, Dungeon Keeper. Yes, you know which was one of the last titles he was working on before he jumped ship. Um, not one of my personal favourites, but Magic Carpet, all under the Bullfrog banner. What point did he go from this man that was, I guess, kind of very well respected in the games industry and was known for delivering games that were good to becoming a bit of a boy who cried wolf or or a, or a bit of a pinocchio well i think there's the cracks began to appear uh, after the black and white because he promised a playstation one port of it and he kept promising all oh, you know could do all in this and that and it and it just sort of fall apart from there but then it, it got it never got released in the end as well even though it got pushed over to a budget label, I think, was going to pick it up in the end because it took so long in development, but it got cancelled in the end. So him promising that, that annoyed a lot of people. But I think the big, big game was Fable on the Xbox in sort of 2005. And and the amazing, the acorn tree, you know, planting an acorn, it'll turn into a tree as you play in the game and that. That was the sort of the, the linchpin of the actual, when people noticed he was sort of biting off one he can chew and promising the world. Coming up with ideas without actually thinking of is this possible with today's technology stack or even tomorrow's technology stack? I mean, even now, that concept of having a world where you plant an acorn and the tree grows and you have kids and then you're playing as the kids down the line. Yeah. We're, we're what, 20 years on? No one's done that yet. Not no. really. It's the thing is, do you want to? Do you really want to do that? That's another thing. You can, you promise this stuff and that, but do you really want to do that in a game? You know, I don't mind just playing the same character the entire thing. It, it works better. It's more sort of rapport if you play as a singular character in a single player game rather than multiple different ones and there's thumbs who don't even appear until the game later on either and stuff like that yeah because i mean think children came into it with fable 2 eventually i played and liked all three of the fable games but after the first one i just ignored anything he said about what was coming with the future games i'm just like i'll get the game when it comes out and it is what it is Mm. and i don't think where's this feature what's going on here So he started with Fable. Things started to kind of tip over from there. Some of his more recent ideas could almost be called scams. I wouldn't say they're scams. I mean, he never intended to con anybody with his plans. He honestly, he just generally thought they were going to be in there. But his tactic, even back when he was with, um, you know, Bullfrog and that, that he would get somebody else to do his stuff for him you know you put this and that you do it because i've had to cut out loads of things in the games over the years like he promised a multiplayer mode in theme park and they couldn't get it to work in the end so they had to cut it out the last minute even though it's like nearly fully working i think i remember a quote where he was talking about theme park and about the desire for multiplayer in theme park Mm. and he said he would sell his children 
to to get multiplayer in theme park or yeah. sacrifice his children to some kind of eldritch god. But there was definitely a kind of a line of, I would give up my children to have a multiplayer game of theme park, which feels hmm. a bit extreme to me, but... Yes, I mean, it's not, it's not that really necessary to give up your offspring in that, but... <laughs> Maybe just one. Maybe just chop off a leg of a child or something. But a leg of a child just to get yeah. like one v one, just to yeah, get the so, kind yeah. of like command and yeah. conquer level one people. Yeah, maybe lose an eyeball from online multiplayer or something. But yeah, where did your kind of I guess online relationship or what one sided relationship with Peter Molyneux begin? Because I'm guessing it started around Fact Hunt, but did it exist before that? Or? Uh, yes, he was. He actually appeared. In a couple of episodes of my retro corner, we'd done a uh, Molyneux special. We'd done three episodes, and he actually was in them. Wow! Yeah. How how was he as a guest? My friend Wes, uh, who also done retro corner with me, he was the guy who negotiated with him. I never spoke to him, but he he said uh, he just basically done the most basic thing possible. Really, I mean, he didn't even say my name in the video as well, which annoyed Wes. He'd done a minimum amount of intro and stuff like that, and everything had to go through his agent as well. So we never spoke directly to him. He had to speak through somebody to him. So after that, time passed. Mm -hmm. And then he started to become a recurring feature. Yes. In your videos. I don't want to use the phrase punching bag because we talked about it briefly before we started recording, which is some people are very, very mean-spirited about Peter Molyneux. Oh, yeah. I've always taken your use of him to be somewhat kind of like good-natured ribbing because it's not like anything you say about him is untrue. Well, I think I think I got a bit... I called him Baldilocks once. I think that's about... <laughs> I think that's the nastiest I ever got. I've thought when you start mocking somebody for their physical appearance, that's when you've lost it. And I didn't want to do that anymore. Yeah, so I sort of recalled, recanted after that. But um, yeah, no, I think yeah, it's just it's just because he's so comical, really, and he keeps promising stuff on that. Loads of people didn't even know who he was, so loads of people know he exists through my videos because a lot of the comments I used to get was "Who is that bald guy?" Larry keeps making fun of. I used to get that comment a lot, and then people used to go and explain who he is. I suppose in part because in in England at least, I think there's probably more chance if you were into games, you would know who Peter Molyneux was, especially if you'd picked up an issue of Edge. Yes, Edge. Him and David Perry as well. But David Perry makes good games, so it always gets away. And also the confusion with another Perry, Dave yes. Perry. Dave Perry, yes. And also and there's another Dave Perry as well. There's the uh, the Norwich Puppet Man. Have you ever heard of him? No. There's a bloke who in he stands in Norwich and Great Yarmouth. And he has a big boot. He has a big ghetto blast and playing old music and that. And he has an old puppet and he keeps bouncing up like that. And he's there every single day. With a puppet flaring music out. And it's, defi it's definitely not the bandana wearing Dave Perry no. on a side gig. No. It's not puppets playing Mario 64. No. <laughs> no, it's definitely a different Dave Perry. But uh, yeah, I've mentioned him in a couple of times in the videos, getting them all confused because there's three of them. I want to do a video on the top three Dave Perrys. <laughs> Spoilers, the puppet man will be number yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's the only one with a career still, that's why. So. Do you think Molyneux is aware of his appearances in your video? Or I you, don't know. I mean, He's never said anything, if he has. He's never said anything to me. I mean, surely somebody's brought it up to him. He's got to be aware that he is kind of seen as this... Uh, comical character. Yeah. A comical person who over-promises and under-delivers. Mm. With regards to kind of over-promising and under-delivering... Yes. It's fair to say that every time Peter Molyneux has over-promised and under-delivered... Yeah. He has been called out on it by gamers mm. by fans by other people in the industry yeah journalists yeah. and but and especially by the gaming press yeah. 
putting yourself in his mindset, mm. why do you think he still continues to do it? Why, why, why do you think that he still continues to just kind of like fall into the same trap over and over again i don't know i think he t- he's just gets really into the into the moments and that and gets excited about the possibilities of what his new game will be and he basically nobody puts a muzzle on him that's why nobody pulls him back and says pete we can't do this we can't do this if he had somebody to go through what he says and stuff like that he might have been a bit more rain checks in that but because he's got his own mouthpiece and that that's when he sort of goes downhill over the various kind of videos you've done the fact hunt videos and everything you've covered a i think you've probably covered every single molinuism there has been pretty much i haven't done the uh, the godus stuff yet that's quite an interesting story i think that's that is the moment when the public turned on him he was just a running joke but because godus used their money for kickstarter and stuff like that that's when they turned nasty on him that's the one where there's a guy who's still meant to be turned into a god. Yes. And it's and it's not going to happen. No, but they promised him he would get uh, 2% of the revenue the game makes for the first year uh, if, with the multiplayer. And then they never added the multiplayer. So we got a grand total of nothing. I mean, I suppose 2% of nothing is still nothing. Yeah. So they did nothing, yeah. <laughs> they didn't hold out on him. Basically, it was a life-changing prize, wasn't it? They promised at the end of the cube turned out to be uh, to be ignored for two years and then given a poster if you could pick one thing that molyneux promised and then failed to deliver that you wish he had actually delivered which one do you think you'd go for uh i think the milo thing i don't know if you remember that when the xbox had the uh the camera the connect the connect that's it and they'd done a, that that interactive boy didn't they basically borderline sort of self-awareness of this ai character i remember that and it just it never went beyond a tech demo i mean if he if he could have got that working that would have been brilliant but do you really want self-aware ai <laughs> that's quite scary that is if he'd have got that working we'd never have had to worry about covid because no. skynet would have taken over by that exactly, point yeah. and it would have all been fine well they done that didn't they they had ai and that and they said what would we do with the the humans if you took over the world and they said they put everyone in a zoo and i guess leaving aside the jokes and the missed promises and not turning someone into a god mm. if you look back at his catalogue of games that he has actually delivered yeah. Which would be your go-to to just pick up and play? Oh, Theme Park. I love Theme Park. Especially the first one, Theme Park World. They sort of trimmed a lot out of that, and it was nowhere near as fun, I found. So just, yeah, they so the original Theme Park. I have lost track of not even the hours, the days, the months, the years that I would have sunk into that original Theme Park. Mm. I mean, actually playing it seriously, not just creating a roller coaster that goes nowhere or a never-ending soda queue with no toilets. I mean, that, yeah. that, that was fun, obviously, but yeah. to actually really get involved in that game and in that world. So yeah, just it's sort of the micromanagement you could do, even put the amount of salt on the chips to make people more thirsty and things like that. That was, you know, that was really, he was really on fire then. And also, really, that's exactly what theme parks and concession stands do. It's kind of like the whole cinema business model. Yes. You push the salted popcorn because then they need the bigger drink. And that's where they make their money because they don't make it from ticket prices. Exactly. Do you think he should keep trying? Yes, I think there's definitely still leeway for him. I think he have to, he'll have to cut back and do sort of more indie stuff nowadays. I think the, uh, the AAA budgets are behind him now, unfortunately. Larry, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to appear in a mirror and terrify me briefly and then talk with us about a bit of retro gaming, but mostly about this strange 
polo-necked man. <laughs> well, uh, Rab Florence described him as an effeminate polo-necked vampire. He is a bit like Colin Robinson yeah. from What We Do in the Shadows. <laughs> do we get to be a good vampire or a bad vampire? We'll let the player choose. And we'll let them have vampire children. <laughs> yes. And grow vampire trees. <laughs> vampire acorns, yeah. And one of you can become a vampire god. Yes. <laughs> Please remind everyone where they can find your stuff, where they can find you on the internet, what you've got coming up. Well, I am on uh, YouTube's mostly. My YouTube channel is youtube.com slash Larry. I do anecdotes about sort of retro gaming history and stuff like that. And I've covered Peter Molyneux several times, obviously. That's what I've been asked here. What I'm doing at the moment is the next video I'm working on is about games that have been de-animated in the West. Basically, a Japanese game with an anime license on it that's had it removed when released in the West. So when's that due to drop? Sometime I soon? I don't know. Soon. Soon. Not this weekend. Next weekend, most likely. Yes. Cool. That'll be the weekend after this episode drops. For, well, that won't sound for weird. For Patreons. <laughs> yeah. And then it'll be the weekend... It'll be the weekend before this episode drops on our free feed. Okay. Yeah, but still, yes. it'll be oh, freeloaders weft away. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, man. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having me. Is there any lessons that can be learnt by programmers now from going back and looking at these old classic games? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing is that all those old classic games were just truly gameplay orientated. And that's what a lot of people forget. You've got flashy graphics, wonderful sound, and great intro sequences. And then, oops, it's the last month before we finish the game. Oh, what, what have we forgotten? Uh, I know, gameplay. Now, Luke, do you remember Dave Perry's drunken pub ramblings from a few years ago? Oh, yes, when he talked about how you could play Magic Carpet, then fly yourself into the ocean, and it would then transport you into another game, so long as that game is also saved onto your same computer. He might have been down the pub with one Peter Molyneux, because fast forward to a game that he was creating called Creation, which was a base defence game where the goal was to defend against other bases. And there were, around, there were different species of fish and kind of like it, it was an underwater game. And an idea being explored was the possibility of linking this game Creation to Magic Carpet, where Magic Carpet would have had the player be able to jump into the water. It would detect where the Creation was installed. And if so, it would load it with the world being based on the magic carpet one the player had just left. If you came out of the water, it would send the player back. Ash, I've just gone back and quickly checked the episode that you were referring to then, that Dave Perry episode when he's talking about how like you can do this, that and the other. No shit. He says you go from magic carpet into creation. Mystery solved. That is fucking astounding that we have come this far and have kind of linked these things together and we've now because that's been a bit of a running gag for us since dave did that back in series three luke i can't believe i'm gonna say this i think we owe dave perry an apology <laughs> no in fairness what we always said was he'd heard something down the pub and was like oh yeah that's a thing i'll talk about it he'd clearly been told this by peter molyneux <laughs> and so he went on games master and said this is a real thing it was planned to be i i am overjoyed that we finally put <laughs> that thing to bed we'll have to get some new material luke <laughs> oh <shit. laughs> it's interesting to look at old games as a good reminder of what gameplay was years and years ago i thought i would have to say would I swap my copy of Tekken 2 for two copies of Mattel in television soccer? I don't think so. But back at the exhibition, people are fighting back tears of joy as they face their heritage. And Dom bigs up looking at where we've come from, acknowledging our history, 
does that mean he'd give up his copy of Tekken 2 for two copies of Mattel in television soccer? No. Would you do it? No, it's a terrible game. (laughs) That is quite literally all we've got time for today. On next week's show, it's an athletic special with John Regis and Tony Jarrett. But because it's Halloween, I leave you with the following question. Why are people so scared of old witches when 16-year-old girls are far more intimidating? Good night. And we get Dom's plug for next week, which I'll be honest with you, we haven't recorded the episode yet, but it is a banging episode the athletic special it's so much fun i am very much looking forward to it it's so weird that i don't think we've ever been miserable recording this podcast i don't think we'd have carried on we'd have probably just found a way to wrap it up and just gone this was a bad idea and we should have given it up a lot earlier but man series six is really boosting me up in a way that i haven't felt since i don't know series four i guess i don't know there was something yeah. about that initial return of Dominic yes. Diamond that really kind of like boosted us up. And Series 5 was grand and all, but it was very much a show trying to find its identity again. And then Series 6, it's just a case of, oh, wow. They've got it. Everything, every episode is beginning to feel like an event. For me, like I was just walking through the door of my house after I had, you know, my long train ride home. And I was just like really looking forward to sitting down and talking with Ash about this episode because what an episode this was. And I had a really, really good time. And I'd just been watching episode three on my commute. Just been watching it again and just chuckling away being like, I can't wait to talk about this episode as well. I'm just getting there with every single episode of series six. If we ever get the opportunity to do a mega record day, as we've done in the past, as I hope we will probably get to do again in the future. Like we did them for series three. I think we did some for series four. I we don't did, think that was, that was when my kid was born. We did like the final like five or so episodes all in one go. I reckon if we do get to do one for series six, whilst our throats may be a bit sore by the end of the day, I genuinely think it will be the most joyous recording session we've had because we'll just we'll just laugh our way through them. Series six is proving a proper joy. I mean, I've got my notes done for like I think the first six episodes and i've enjoyed pretty much all of it well i think that's going to wrap it up for this episode ash uh what did you make of episode two overall it was another solid episode it was another episode that didn't flag that didn't drag it had another immensely entertaining celebrity it also had a great challenge with the king of combos 1996 the reviews were fine the news was fine And the feature was fascinating because, yeah, we're now talking about retro gaming in 1996. Nothing exceptional, but also nothing that dragged it down. How about you? I had a really, really good time with this episode. Kind of like you were saying there, like there's, it doesn't put a step wrong. I think that the reviews are are fine, but it's kind of buoyed by some really interesting news items that we've had. And then a great King of Combos challenge, Derek Lynch's staggered commentary aside, and then a really, really great celebrity challenge with a celebrity that was mad keen to play the game, a celebrity that was mad keen to be involved with the show. And then a fascinating little snapshot in time feature looking at the retro gaming scene of 1996, which I, I, I find thoroughly, thoroughly interesting. When I was kind of thinking of my percentage score, you know, I look back at the flat 90 that uh, I gave to episode one and I was like, well, you know, I think I enjoyed this one slightly more because I enjoyed the celebrity challenge more. So I'm going to 91% for this episode. I too was at 91%. 
we are in line with series six is really finding us on the same page just it's all coming together luke the shows come together our review scores are coming together you're doing better at strike it leaky <laughs> it's a golden age for under consultation with only one series left to go oh but that's going to wrap it up for this episode thank you all so much for listening you all rule you can find us on social media at under console pod on twitter at under.console on instagram and you can send us an email to feedback at underconsultation.com. or if you want to join us for some real-time feedback chat with us chat with other listeners other fans of retro gaming and retro pop culture you can do so over on our Discord, where people are joining all the time. Hello to Rudy Sisu, who has just joined the Discord whilst we were recording this episode. And if you want to support this podcast monetarily, you can do so over at patreon.com forward slash under console pod, where you'll get access to UCP Extra, which is this show format, but about other shows from the 80s, 90s and 2000s, and Under Console Nation, our community podcast, which recently featured Under Consultation fan and Discord member and moderator cliff from n64 live podcast which was a fun old chat yeah i know you did really well on the questions i was actually a little bit jealous because i was reading some of those questions while i was on holiday going man <laughs> but if you back us at the five pound level you get next week's episode one week early and ad free at the 10 pound level you get a little bit extra ash what do they get oh they get our patreon pack which has a glittery golden under consultation joystick waggler mug stuffed with sweeties retro trading cards badges stickers lots of great stuff and that wings its way straight from us direct to your door and a shout out to those £10 backers, Xanderthal, William, Tom, The Amazing Cliff, Simon, Sean, Sarah, aka Pink Lithium, Richard, Reese, Nick, Misha, Matty, Boo, Mark, Link, Kevin, Jamie, Ian, Harriet, Manga Girl, Gordon Dempster, Gordon Brands, David Palmer, David Fisher, Darkside73, Chrissy Two Sticks, Arcadia Wild Bill, Andrew, Andrew Cummings, and Adam D. Thanks to Larry once more for joining us with his wisdom, wit, and uh, general opinions on one Peter Molyneux, and of course the retro gaming scene in general. Always a pleasure to speak to him and have him on the podcast. That's all for now. We'll see you in seven days. Take care, everyone. Good night. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.